Welcome back to the China Care Podcast. We're here with Patrick and Jess, two WashU seniors. Last episode, we left off with Patrick talking about how he views the rising tensions in U.S.-China relations. Patrick criticized the attitude of both governments. He pointed out how closing down social media platforms between the two countries is escalating the tensions between them and can lead to further misunderstanding between the citizens of each country. This episode, we will pick up with Jess and get her take on the relationship between U.S. and China. It's very interesting that you brought up like how the U.S. and China have been interacting in terms of COVID. But another thing that I've also thought about that really shows how they've just been going at each other rather than focusing on the issues is how both the U.S. how the U.S. has responded to Black Lives Matter and how China has responded to the Hong Kong protests because both of these movements are very similar in that they are critical of how police is practiced in their countries and. I actually I held a workshop with APDJ on Thursday, so yesterday, last night, on like comparing these two movements and also thinking about police state practices. And like in Hong Kong, a lot of the protesters have been like waving the U.S. flag as like a symbol of freedom, and they've been looking towards Trump for support because they recognize that in order for their movement to succeed, they think that they need like American government support. So it's because of that, like. Even though like Black Lives Matter and Hong Kong protests have a lot of like overlapping concerns and critiques of the government, they're very careful to.、Uh, some of the protesters are very careful to not critique President Trump because they're scared that they're going to lose that support from the U.S. in their movement towards independence. But yeah, at the same time, it's like Trump and media and also Chinese government. They're like, how dare you be critical about how I handle. Hong Kong protesters, when you're doing the same to your Black Lives Matter protesters, and then it's the same is said for like President Trump, like how dare you critique how I handle Black Lives Matter protesters when you're doing the same with your Hong Kong protesters? And I think the big takeaway from all of this is just like all of this political rambling and discourse and argument between the heads of our countries, like the people who lose are not are not the Politicians. It's going to be the people, the protesters, and what they're advocating for, and the citizens. And the same happens for the WeChat and TikTok situation. And I think it just really underscores how, like, a lot of times the people who lose from these type of situations are never are going to be the people most affected by them. And like this bickering is, in some ways, very immature,、um, and it's just it's not focused on. The issues at hand. I think it's good that you brought up the movements、uh, about police practices, both within Hong Kong and the U.S., since those are pretty relevant issues for、uh, both of the people there.、Um, I know APIDJ has been recently focusing on some of these topics, like Black Lives Matter and some other、uh, current pandemic-related issues. So, do you want to talk a little bit more about what APIDJ does specifically? Yeah, in the typical school year, we will be working on our disaggregated data campaign, and that campaign is basically pushing our university to start collecting and publishing Asian data disaggregated into more specific ethnic groups, because we recognize that the experience of someone who's Chinese versus someone who's Vietnamese is going to be very different, and having that disaggregated data, which has been done in California, has shown to improve programs that are meant for Asian students. So. 
we were working on that originally, but then COVID hit. So then we were like, oh, the admin will probably not have time for us to think about this right now. And we put a temporary like pause on that campaign, probably going to jumpstart that again once the semester starts, uh, when COVID plans are a little bit more out of their mind. But during the summer, uh, we've been doing weekly workshops. The first six that we did was focused on addressing Asian anti-Blackness because we recognized that with the death of George Floyd, a lot of Asian people were starting to have conversations with their parents about like their racism, right? Like I grew up in a really, I grew up in an anti-Black racist household and I had like two arguments with my parents. And I know that I wasn't the only Asian person experiencing that at that time because these are hard conversations to have. And so we did six of those. We took a one week break and then we're now carrying on with our next six workshops. We have three more to go and it's called like Toolbox for Change. So it's basically teaching on issues and giving people the tools to think about what's going on very critically and sort of giving them the tools to change things in their communities. We've been also doing a lot of internal reflecting, like how do we create a sustainable political Asian group on campus? Because what usually happens with a lot of political organizing on campus is once the people who have like been spearheading this thing graduates, it just fades out. So I think this has been on the mind of a lot of organizers on campus. Like, how do we make this sustainable and make sure this continues even when, like, my year graduates? So you mentioned that API DJ is doing a lot of kind of workshops on working on how Asians can respond to movements like Black Lives Matter. Um, so can you tell us, as a member of API DJ, what are some specific ways Asians can participate in social movements related to racism? There isn't a one-size-fit-all solution, but what you can do is a very personal question to ask yourself. How educated am I so far? What are my best talents that I can bring to the table? What holes that need to be filled? But the general advice I would give people is just like, continue learning and talking, reading and listening to voices of Black leaders and community members. Um, talking about these issues is really important with people within the Asian community because I think there's this invisible wall where you're not supposed to talk about it and it becomes kind of taboo. So we have to start normalizing these conversations because at the end of the day, like Asians are also involved in this topic of race and white supremacy. So yeah, talk about these issues with each other. Don't be too hard on yourself. Like this is a process, not a destination. You're always going to be growing and learning together from an article I read by Roxane Gay. She quoted uh, Tanahasi quotes in this, and he says, I think one has to even abandon the phrase ally and understand that you are not helping someone in a particular struggle. The fight is yours. And I think that is like really meaningful because like we're always thinking, like, how do we help other people? But remember that this is not just about helping other people. It's about helping ourselves because this is a collective struggle and this is collective movement to, towards racial equity for everybody. And the other thing that Roxane Gay said was black people do not need allies. We need people to stand up and take on the problems born of oppression as their own without remove or distance. We need people to do this even if they cannot fully understand what it's like to be oppressed for their race or ethnicity, gender, sexuality, ability, class, religion, or other marker of identity. We need people to use common sense to figure out how to participate in social justice. And this is also one of the quotes that I really like because a lot of time people think, oh, well, how do I start becoming like a good advocate for social issues? 
and then they're scared to say like I'm put in put out their opinions and suggestions but like remember that nobody's born out of the womb as like an activist or anything like that how like activism started is that people had concerns about things that were happening they discussed with each other and like they started making solutions from there so I guess on that end it's just like you definitely would have probably have more to offer than you would think and don't be afraid to sort of like step into that space because movement work organizing work always needs more people and what is are one of the most welcoming communities that I've known yeah I think those quotes are very powerful especially since it like shines sort of a fresh perspective on this topic so to anyone interested in the full articles that Jess has mentioned we will provide the links in the podcast description below Do you have anything to add to this, Patrick? I think what Jess said is completely correct. Like, I can't emphasize enough the importance of being able to have a proper discussion with anyone you want to. So, like, in my opinion, where a lot of discourse is happening right now, you see is online. And that, I guess, is a good attempt to try to understand people. But most of the times when you talk to people online, and you have like these online discussions on Twitter or Reddit, most of the times you're just talking back to yourself. Like it's very, very like tunnel visioning when you happen to converse with a lot. It just happens like when you talk with people online. Um, I think it's very important, like what Jess said, is to like reach out to people and talk with them in person because when you can see someone face to face and hear their voice in person, it's a lot easier to empathize and a lot easier to ask questions and explain your thought process. I have my own thoughts for the Asian community during this time and how they choose to express their views. So for example, one thing that I saw that particularly bothered me, and I'm just speaking on behalf of Asians here, is when I saw people like doing like Instagram activism, it's like a great thing, but like usually when you do Instagram activism too, it's not, you're not really reaching out to another demographic. Most of the people in your group of Instagram friends are people that basically have the same political views as us. But it could, it definitely does help other people understand different issues. But at the same time, like I saw on people's Instagram stories, like especially Asians, some Asians putting out like these things that said, oh, Asians benefit from white privilege. And I just found particular problem with that because I think that that statement is the furthest thing from the truth. And I feel like statements like those do not help Asians and totally trivialize and underplay very real racism and hardship that Asians face in the United States under the current system. And I feel like this kind of thinking and sentiment is a lot of the reasons why us as Asians get stereotyped into being very submissive. Like, oh, like we always say we're, we're not the ones facing any hardship, you know? And that's why I just found particular issue with this statement. Um, so I would just encourage Asian people when they advocate and to carefully think about the things that they're putting out there to not to help other communities, but also not put down your own community while you're at it. Um, I understand that such uh, sayings are coming out of a place with good intentions, and I totally appreciate that. 
but at the same time, it's very important to be careful about what you're saying as well. And I totally agree with Jess, like you have to engage and educate your community. But in the end, it has to also do it in a way that also honors your own community and its own interests as well. 100% agree. Like the statement, Asians benefit from white privilege comes from like a good place, but it's also such a flawed take and understanding of like the structure of oppression, right? Because at the end of the day, white privilege is a privilege of white people and any POC, any person of color is not going to be benefiting from that. While we might be like, quote unquote, doing a little better than like this other community, that doesn't mean anything about us being privileged. So I think like that is so important and it's such a good reminder. And I actually saw a post in, there's this Facebook group called Subtle Asian Discourse where they, it was basically what you just said. And I was just thinking like, I feel like so many Asian people like are trying to just critically think about how in what ways have their own identity contributed to the oppression of like of other folks. And like, there's a difference between that and us benefiting from a system of oppression. So I think that was like a really good point made by Patrick. So shifting gears a little bit, um, just since you are involved in organizations that have important messages to share, how are you planning to continue your organization's activities next semester amid the uh, pandemic? Well, currently we've been meeting like bi-weekly via Zoom. And the thing is, this is not just an issue that APIDJ faces, but all organizers, um, is that most of the organizing work is done virtually. So for example, I'm part of other groups like the Graduate Workers Union, Undergrad Graduate Workers Union, and like coordinating, I've been coordinating actions with them. We've been having Zoom calls with administrators to advocate for like things that students are looking for. And, but in terms of like what we're gonna do in the fall for APIDJ, we're actually planning to meet next week <laughs> to discuss this exact question. Um, but I think it's still like very possible to hold all our activities just because at the end of the day, it's like, I just think that like so many things can be done virtually that we don't think it can be done virtually. And I think meetings is are one of them. And um, organizing doesn't always have to be in person. Obviously it's great. And we'll work with that as that comes up. Yeah, it'll for sure be like a challenge to sort of plan things with so much uncertainty right now. But like you mentioned, like a lot of stuff can be done virtually, which is a good thing. So do you have any advice for other clubs on how they can continue to host events and activities for the upcoming months? Yeah, I mean, something I hear about like what uh, CSA is trying to do, as Patrick was saying, is like sort of that community building within like Chinese communities and at large, right? So I think um, I've been working with the Deneb Stars program. It's a low income first gen program for undergrads at WashU. And this is something we've been thinking a lot about, some suggestions where maybe we'll make a Minecraft server. <laughs> um, I don't know how uh, feasible that is, but I know John Hopkins just like, <laughs> they just gave everyone Minecraft accounts. And personally, I'm a fan. But anyway, um, other things that I have been doing in my internship role is I hold like Zoom sessions for people to come and chill and chat. And what I've noticed is that people just want to talk. Like <laughs> everyone's isolated, everyone's lonely. People just want to talk and get, get their frustrations out, whether it's about the COVID-19 fall plan or just like about their living situation and such. And then also um, I've been working on our Slack uh, platform for the Neb Stars and created like an introduced channel and also like a weekly question. So like 
people in Deneb can introduce themselves with a picture. And I think that's like a good way to sort of like uh, put a face to people's name and engage with people. And the weekly question is just like a fun way to see like, oh, what is, what are you reading right now? And just, yeah, in that way, just a continuous online presence is like super important, I think, for just being active and hosting events. So you guys will be both seniors uh, this year at WashU. Um, so for you guys personally, what do you think the future will look like? And um, do you guys have any post-graduation plans? Well, as for me, because I don't know if I'm going back to campus, um, I do I do wish that everything was normal like everyone else is wishing, especially since I this is, will be my last semester. So um, it's kind of sad that your last semester is virtual. Post-grad, I just really hope that I can find a job I know the job market for us is going to be kind of tough. Like we're coming in a job market that's like right at the doorstep of a pandemic. I feel like at least the seniors who just graduated, they they start applying to jobs and they might have gotten a job offer before this pandemic really hit the U.S., which was like mid-March. So they probably already knew like their future plans already. But for us, we're like, I feel like we got the... The short the end, of the, end of the stick. The short end. <laughs> the short end of the stick. Yes, yes. For me, um, what does my future look like? I'm not really sure. Before, I was actually really set on becoming a scientific researcher, uh, but because of my, because of COVID, my research plans got canceled. But also, I've just had like some bad experiences with research and people in research and I've realized that academia itself I don't really like the structure of it it's just very there's a lot of like weird professionalism rules and I mean being professional is good but there it's weird it's like I think a lot of people think the research community is like oh you're here to help each other but a lot of times it's just like you're trying to compete with other people on like getting that idea out first and I don't know how much I like that either and yeah so originally I was thinking of doing research. I'm still keeping that in the back burner, but this summer got me questioning really like, what does it mean to have a job? Yeah, so I don't know. I'm hoping I'll have a job after I graduate. I think it's just, I don't know what my, what kind of job I will be looking for. Cause I also want to make sure that, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, and for you, you're like majoring in two different things and you also do research. So I'm confused. <laughs> There's a lot going on there. <laughs> but like, yeah, I think it's just, Whatever job I find, I think I always want to remember that I want to include some type of like community aspect in it. Um, so, yeah, I guess we'll see what the future holds if there's even jobs available. Mm-hmm. Yeah, finding a job is for sure going to be super tough. But, you know, one good thing is like, I guess how supportive the Washington community is and just the ability to, you know, reach out to everyone, uh, like faculty, professors, and how open they are to, you know, hook you up with opportunities and stuff. So we're all in this together. Hopefully things will work out. And with that, we just want to wish you both the best of luck with everything. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank Thank you you for having having us. us. (laughs) Thanks for tuning in to this two-part episode featuring WashU seniors, Jessica Yu and Patrick Joe. Again, if you're interested in the article that Jess mentioned, the link is in the description below. You can also find the links to our social media there. Make sure to follow them for up-to-date information on when our next episode will be released. 
We have many more guests planned for our upcoming episodes, including a WashU professor and several international students. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope to see you in the next episode.